Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Invictus, the new Clint Eastwood film. Uh, I'm here with Daniel Coyce from Washington, D.C. Hi, Dan. Hey, how are you? Dan is a film critic for the Washington Post. He also writes reviews for True Slant, and he writes occasionally for the New York Magazine Vulture blog. So, Dan, Invictus, uh, Clint Eastwood's new movie about the South African um, rugby victory of what year are we talking? When was their famous victory in the Rugby World Cup? 1995. Uh, 1995, yes. Right, which was during the first term of Nelson Mandela's presidency. So Clint Eastwood has now made a film with actually great casting here, Morgan Freeman as Nelson Mandela. I wasn't even aware of how similar they looked until you see Mandela in the, in the closing credits. And, uh, and Matt Damon as Francois Pienaar, is that how we're saying his name? Mm-hmm. Who was the captain of the, the rugby team in 1995. So um, I saw this movie last night, and I desperately need you to help me understand why it's being... Uh, taken so seriously and given so much love by critics outside of the brand name of Clint Eastwood. I just checked on Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't actually read any reviews because I haven't written mine yet, but I saw that it has an 85% rating among the top critics on Rotten Tomatoes, which is somewhat foreseeable because it seems like Clint Eastwood can do no wrong critically these days. Um, But I really feel like even if you are a Clint Eastwood fan, this is a low, low moment for him. I just could not find anything to hold on to in this movie. I thought it was completely dull. Please tell me why I should care. Uh, I'm afraid I can't so much. I mean, the only reason I can think... I also really dislike this movie, and the only reason I can think of why uh, critics are loving it... I mean, obviously people like the movies that they like, but I mean, I worry that there is a combination of not only knee-jerk Clint Eastwoodism, but knee-jerk Nelson Mandelaism. I mean, if you want sort of two grizzled old saints together in one movie who it's hard to dislike, um, you can't do much worse than Clint and Mandela. Um, but yes, I agree with you that this feels like a, a low point in Clint Eastwood's directing career for a lot of reasons, and um, let's talk about them. I mean, we should tell our uh, new listeners that we will, of course, be spoiling this movie, although what there is to spoil, I don't know. It's a sports movie, so it, needless to say, it, it ends in triumph. Right, and it's a sports movie that's not even fiction. It's about an actual event, so given that it's right. a documented fact that they won the World Cup in 1995 and that you wouldn't be seeing the movie if that hadn't happened, there's a, there really is nothing to spoil. I would also argue that there's nothing to spoil because this movie fails to create any suspense about sports or anything else. But let's, let's do a quick walkthrough. Okay, so... Um, Nelson Mandela has just become uh, the president of South Africa, and uh, and he is faced with innumerable problems. Um, but as far as we can tell, uh, as viewers of this movie, really the only issue he needs to deal with as South Africa as a president is the shameful performance of the South African national rugby team, the Springboks, who are uh, beloved by the white Afrikaner population of South Africa and despised by the uh, black population of South Africa because of... Uh, the era of apartheid that they represent. Um, And Mandela throws his weight behind the team. Um, He intercedes when a a newly black sports council um, votes to strip the Springboks of their name and their traditional green and yellow colors um, and uh, makes a lot of speeches about how the first step in um, resolving the problems of their country is forgiveness and they must forgive those who uh, hated them. Um, and uh, he encourages Matt Damon, who, as you said, plays Francois Pienaar, the captain of the team, to improve the team's lowly showing an international play with a goal of eventually winning the World Cup. Um, we then get about a year of, I guess, training montages and scenes of Feels Morgan like a Freeman. year. Yeah. <laughs> scenes of Morgan Freeman looking at the World Cup draw and figuring out who they need to beat and what will happen. And, uh, and then at the end, 
they win the World Cup. Right. So, so um, <laughs> that oh wait, and there's also a subplot. Um, there's there is a, one single subplot, uh, which is based around Mandela's security team, um, also newly integrated, the presidential security team. Mandela brings in his own people, uh, uh, Jason Shabala and Linga Munsami, played by um, two South African actors, Tony Kagoroge and Patrick Mofokang, um, who uh, view with great suspicion the white members of the presidential security force, holdovers from uh, P.W. Botha, the previous uh, president of South Africa, um, who they equate with the regime that imprisoned them and their president in the same way that black um, South African residents equate uh, the Springboks with the white regime that until recently was in charge. Um, and as the year goes by, about the year that this movie covers, um, they reluctantly learn to accept their compatriots uh, and learn in at least one case to uh, cheer on the Springboks and love the game of rugby. Um, although I say all that, and honestly, I've given it more drama in my extremely boring telling than it actually has in the movie, as really, we don't really ever see these characters relate to each other in any like reasonable, real way. They always sort of seem suspicious, and then at the end, all of a sudden, for no reason, one of them is excited about rugby. Yeah, I mean, that's the place, that subplot about the security guards and the and the integration of the, of the presidential guard is one place that there could have been some suspense, right? I mean, the sports story is not going to ultimately have any suspense, because we know the outcome, but... It's it's actually quite interesting when those when the the first clash happens between you know these the, the black security guards and the Afrikaners and the sense that Nelson Mandela is going to throw his weight behind the Afrikaners and then these guys are none too happy about it, um, but ultimately there's no real conflict there right there's never right. a moment well for one thing there's no character development we know nothing about these guys except you know there's the the black South African guards and the white South African guards we never learn about their families we never learn about any of their motivations other than you know this basic racial enmity and so they sort of stare each other down in a few scenes I sort of was you know, almost hoping that they would burst into fisticuffs or something at some point so there'd be a little suspense but not even that. Yeah, at the end, one of the black dudes learns to like rugby. The other never never learns, and I was sort of with him. I was bored by the rugby all the way through. And uh, we're not really sure how the white guys change at all, except I guess they're willing to tolerate an integrated force. But sort of the, mean, right. the, the feel-good, the feel-good, you know, white hand and a black hand on a trophy, there actually is that shot toward the end of the movie. You know, the... the, the, the um, What's the word? The trajectory toward that inevitable ending that we're going to see a white hand and a black hand on a trophy or a white man and a black man watching a game together is as inevitable as the outcome of the, the football game, the rugby game. So I don't know. I just didn't feel that I learned anything about race from this movie. And this is always my problem with Clint Eastwood's moral universes. I mean, in this case, it's literally black and white. But I mean, they're always black and white, right? There's always like the glowering dude and then the righteous dude. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's too Western for me or something. I just, I, I didn't really feel like I learned anything about South African racial politics from this movie. Right. I mean, I, and the the subplot of the security guards had the secondary effect for me of, because it was so poorly developed and because so little happened in it, I spent the whole movie thinking, well, they must be in there for a reason. Someone must make an attempt on Mandela's life at some point, and we will see these guys spring into action and sort of a throwback to in the line of fire and work together as a team and save Mandela's life and the black security guards will realize that the white security guards really do have Mandela's best interests at heart and um, and that will like neatly tie into the rugby plot but in fact that doesn't happen at all no threats are made to Mandela's life there is a moment in the final of the World Cup when a commercial airline pilot flies his jet low over the stadium because he is printed uh, let's go spring box on the bottom of his plane and for a moment, the security guards think that they're being attacked, but that's it. There's right. no 
actual I mean there's no actual threat to Mandela at any point and so not only do these characters not develop we never even get to really see them in action we just see them fretting right which I guess I mean I guess an attempt did not actually occur on his life at that at that game but come on fictionalize Clint give us something here there was a little bit of a red herring at the game I thought it was a red herring you just thought it was a sloppy directorial moment but there's a guy that we've never seen before who kind of comes up and the stadium's empty it's the day before the game and peers around menacingly and then disappears, and then the security guards come up. So we, you and I kept thinking that that was some kind of sniper who was going to make an attempt on Mandela's life. But ultimately, I think that was just one of the security guards who was so poorly identified as a character that we didn't recognize him at that point. Right. And so in that way, the security guards have uh, a lot uh, in common with the rugby players, who are also um, undifferentiated for the most part, aside from Matt Damon, um, who, it must be said, really, really looks like a rugby player. Um, we, I don't, I couldn't, and oh, and and the one black player on the um, Springboks, Chester. Um, I honestly could not tell you anything about any of the other characters on on the rugby team either, and that points to sort of the larger issue with this movie, which is that um, for me, at any rate, which is that as a sports movie, the one area in which I feel like it's really hard to uh, make a bad. I feel like it's really hard to make a bad sports movie for people who like sports movies. You're never going to love a sports movie. As you've told me, you start, you lack the gene uh, that makes you interested in the outcomes of sporting events. But uh, for those of us who do like competition and like sports, especially for those of us who are sort of intrigued by the notion of exotic sports, at least to Americans like rugby, um, it should be almost easy to make an exciting sports movie full of action, full of natural competition. It, there's, it's easy to peg an enemy. Um, and and the ticking clock of a sporting event should theoretically give you natural drama. I mean, even sort of the crappiest sports movies, like, say, Remember the Titans, has its own um, drama based on the actual ticking of the clock and a sense of what's at stake behind the outcome of the sporting event. But we, But we get neither of those in this. First of all, we don't get any sense of the actual progress of the climactic rugby match, which takes up literally, I mean, the last half hour of this movie, um, because we we don't understand rugby. We, I don't, at least I don't, understand how people score points exactly, or what the rules are, or why all those players kept sticking their heads together in like a zipper formation. <laughs> I know it's called a scrum, although they never use that word in a movie, but every time that happened, I would think scrum. They all right. sort of they get into a really tight cluster together and push against each other really hard. They also say at one point the ball pops out of it, but why or how? Right, we don't know who's holding it or how or why. At one point they go and teach soccer. I mean, I keep calling it soccer rugby clinics to um to children in the townships, and there we learn at least that the ball has to be passed backward or to the side. It can't be passed forward. I think that's the only rugby rule we learn in the entire thing. So yeah, there's a fuzziness to the treatment even of sport, which is the whole the whole reason for the movie's existence. And I mean, I give myself enough credit as a viewer to say that they could make the rugby interesting for me if they tried. I mean, they right. being Clint Eastwood. Right. Um, Clint Eastwood you know, if you have a uniquely... little bit of a tutorial in, in what the sport is, and not just the sport, but that particular team and what their strengths and weaknesses are and, you know, what the roles of the different um, players on the team are, then, yeah, of course you can get invested in the outcome. But that, that ticking clock ending you were talking about, where in order to spin out the suspense, Eastwood does this thing of slowing down the second clock so that the seconds take more than one second. Remember that, that part at the yes. end and everybody's moving in slow motion? And all I can say is that that was exactly my experience of the movie. Like, the seconds have never passed slower. I honestly would have preferred 
colored a progress bar on the screen that was just telling me they're winning, they're losing, they're tied. Because right. the in- imprecision of what we were learning about rugby, whether it was because of the way it was shot or you know how much story background we had, was just not enough to keep you enthralled. I mean, I think it must be said that Clean Eastwood, it turns out, is sort of uniquely unsuited to directing uh, busy action scenes with a lot of people doing a lot of stuff. I mean, he just doesn't seem to know how to make those scenes vivid. He basically, he either shoots right up in people's faces or from uh, from a vantage point that seems like it's maybe halfway up the stadium stands. Um, so, we, I mean, we don't get any real sense of how the players are moving in relation to each other. Um, we don't get any sense of like the, the sort of physical peril that they may be in. Even the hits, which in rugby seem like they should be like bone shattering, don't register. I mean, they don't seem uh, as sort of brutal or tough as they presumably actually are. Um, and so, and so the rugby really falls flat. And then on the second level, that a sports movie should work, we don't ever really get a sense of why this game is important and that obviously is the greater reason to exist for this movie and it's the whole reason that the movie was made and this game is referred to i know as the south african miracle and i understand academically that the team brought together the blacks and whites of south africa in a way that um in a way that changed the country for the better but on a practical level in this movie all we really get are scenes of Nelson Mandela obsessing about rugby and scenes of black people and white people watching rugby and cheering. I mean, I just don't get any sense that of a nation rallying behind a team or um, or especially the, the blacks of South Africa learning to love something they once hated. I feel like showing a scene of people in a in a, you know, in a grocery store um, in the shanty towns of Pretoria watching the game is no substitute for explaining why they actually care about the game. Right, especially because many of them seem to be of a generation, as is pointed out several times, that Mandela himself, his generation, grew up cheering against the Springboks, that they would right. cheer for any team that was not the Springboks because of what the Springboks represented to them. And that's driven home ad nauseum in the first quarter of the movie, but then it just sort of all disappears in the goodwill that I guess Mandela manages to generate. But yeah, as you say, I mean, it seems very schematic. You don't you don't really see it happening. And I think the reason you don't is that you don't know any of those people except for Mandela and Francois Pienaar. So I want to talk about those two characters and the actors who play them and also maybe a little bit about this movie's, you know, um, box office and Oscar prospects. But uh, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor. So our Audible.com recommendation this week is is related to our movie in a fun way. It's a book that's obscurely related to rugby um, that I remember loving in my teens. Or actually, this is another version of the same story that's told in the book Alive about the uh, the rugby team from where were they from? Argentina. Argentina. The Argentinian rugby team that um, that crashed in the Andes Mountains back in the early 70s, I believe it was. We're trapped in the snow for an entire winter and famously ended up Donner Party style um, eating the bodies of some of the people that had that had died. They never killed anyone to eat them, as I remember, right? They ate people who were already died, who had already right. died and were frozen in the snow. So Nando Parado, one of the survivors, has written, co-written a book called Miracle in the Andes, 72 Days on the Mountain and My Long Trek Home, um, which is which is available on Audible, uh, unabridged, 10 hours long, <laughs> 10 hours of, of cannibalism in the Andes. Um, did, were you as struck by this book when you read it back in the day as I was, Dan? I love oh, this yeah, book. I mean, it's, I mean, as a, as a chronicle of uh, rugby players facing adversity, it's far superior to Invictus. Um, it probably teaches and... you more about rugby, too. I remember I yes. read it and my whole family read it. I think my parents read it and then they passed it down to us. We were like their teenage kids. 
and we would have these family discussions. If we crashed in the Andes, would you eat me? Yeah, I'd eat you. Would you eat me? Oh, yeah, you're welcome to eat me. We had it all, all cleared up. Right. I almost feel like it's a parental duty to fatten oneself up so that if something like this ever happens, my children could live for weeks <laughs> off my rich, fatty flesh. Yeah, have another donut. It's for the kids. Right. I'll stay well marbled for the kids. <laughs> All right, so as regular listeners know, our deal with Audible.com is that if you sign up for a membership, uh, you get one free book a month with your with your membership, and you get a free book for signing up. That's You can do that on our website, www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, and uh, you get to keep that free book even if you don't stick with your membership. So give it a try. Audible really is a great service with an amazing selection of audiobooks. All right, so back to our movie. What else do we have to say about, about Invictus? You still haven't convinced me. I guess I'm, you're the wrong person to ask because you <laughs> didn't like it so much either. But, but a lot of people are convinced, and I'm wondering what you think about um, this movie's afterlife as, a, as an Oscar magnet. Uh, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to imagine audiences loving this movie, but it's easy to imagine Oscar loving this movie. I mean, it's super square, um, but it is uh, it is heroic, and it is about a hero, and it features a beloved actor in a role that he obviously was born to play. I mean, it must be said that that Morgan Freeman is very good in this movie, as bad as the movie is. And even beyond that, it's impossible to think of anyone else ever playing Nelson Mandela as Nelson Mandela as Morgan Freeman. No, it's true, a- and he's even at the right point in his career. He's at the right age. He's really, he's really perfect. I mean, I can find no flaw with Morgan Freeman's performance. Also, they're both doing accents, as long as we're talking Oscars. They're both right. doing what sounds to me like at least a you know, well-crafted South African accent, and so that's always a good, a good Oscar magnet. But no, I mean, Morgan Freeman is irreproachable. It's just unfortunate that he wasn't given more to do in this role. He doesn't really have any internal conflict. You know, he, to me, he just he seemed like he was such a statue of nobility, which is what Morgan Freeman tends to be cast as anyway, right? He's right. God. He's like the guy who integrates the prom in this new documentary that's about the real Morgan Freeman. You know, he, um, he paid right. for a prom at his high school, the first integrated prom at his own high school. I mean, he's just so obviously... This, this pure, good, radiant guy. We won't get into the rumors about him and his step-granddaughter here because, actually, I don't think that those are very credibly sourced. But but Morgan Freeman, right, is the upstanding guy. Right, and I mean, and there are, and there are all very, very brief glances of, like, a more fully realized and a more interesting Mandela. There are very brief moments with his family, or at least we later realize they are his family, um, in which we see sort of the discomfort. We know he's separated from his wife. There's a scene when one of the white um, security guards asks after Mandela's family, and he his face falls, and he goes back into the house and doesn't want to talk about it. Um, but but those are just tiny, tiny moments that don't give us any sense of him as a man, so much as they feel sort of shoehorned in by someone who said, well, he, he can't be a complete saint, right? He needs um, a backstory. But that moment's right. interesting that you talk about the, it's one of the, this is kind of fits into the security guard subplot. It's one of the white Afrikaner security guards who asks, how's your family? Just in return to um, to Mandela asking him how his family is. Mm-hmm. And his face falls and he goes inside. And then the main, I can't remember his name um, because they're also in, undifferentiated, but the, the leader of the black security guards. Tony. Tony. Yeah. Um, jumps on the white guy and says we don't ask him anything about his personal life it's it's off limits and it kind of jumps down his back for it and i felt that at that moment it was as if he were jumping down the audience's back in a way that if we had a glimmer of interest in his personal life we had better shut up too it's sort of like the movie doesn't really question that walling off of of mandela's personal life from 
from his uh, from his his governance, and it right. doesn't, doesn't even necessarily have to be his personal life. I don't really understand his attitude toward governance, you know, except that he's he's noble and he wants to unite his country. I didn't see any of the struggles that he would have with coming out of twenty seven years in prison and becoming the president of his country. I mean, that part of the story is truly unbelievable. And right. as impatient as I got with this movie, at that one moment when uh, Matt Damon visits his his former prison cell. And the prison has become sort of like a tourist attraction, essentially, about you know the the pre-apartheid about the apartheid days. That is really sobering. And when you think for a second about what a hero this guy actually is, then you think, wow, an incredible movie could have been made about him. But this ain't it. Right. But how did he get there? Yeah. I mean, how 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 was he just always naturally that good? And for those entire twenty-seven years, he knew if he ever got out, he'd be the greatest dude alive and would be nice. <laughs> to, right. Because that's so boring. To his jailers, but or but how did he get there? We have no idea. And I mean, you know, and from a political standpoint, we do at least get some scenes of him explaining his rationale and explaining why he is basically appeasing the white minority in South Africa, even though they no longer have power. Um, but we don't really get any sense of the risks of that. I mean, he's so beloved by the people that he can sort of bully, uh, not bully, but he can he can convince the black population to go along with this plan that they maybe otherwise would not like. He can convince them to let the Springboks keep their name and colors, even if it's only by a slim majority. But we don't get any sense of the risk he runs. And, and for example, if the South African rugby team had not gotten any better, and had not been, I guess, inspired by magical Nelson Mandela to become a good team and win the World Cup, uh, this maybe would have been a terrible political tactic, Nelson Mandela's uh, embrace of rugby, and according to this movie, at least, his willingness to ignore important foreign dignitaries in meetings so that he can get rugby scores. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and his, I mean, it would have been a terrible idea. His female secretary is always kind of upbraiding him for it, saying, why rugby? Why make rugby the, the whole point? You're skipping these important meetings with dignitaries for rugby, and we're supposed, sort of supposed to know instinctively that he's doing the right thing. But at, at times, you'd sort of be with her, like, gee, I, I wouldn't feel great about the new president of South Africa if I was sitting there in a meeting about trade relations and he was getting up to go watch a rugby game. Right. Um, and so, and so, yes, I can see Oscar falling all over themselves for this movie, but at the same time, as a viewing experience, um, I just found it, just, as you've said, predictable and boring and, um, and sort of inept. I mean, just like a movie that, that feels half-assed and half-finished and like it coasts on the goodwill we have toward Clint Eastwood and the even far greater goodwill we have toward Nelson Mandela. Yeah, I can't help but feel that if this same exact movie had been made by a, a relatively neophyte director or somebody who is just sort of a Hollywood hack that we don't know about, that people would be saying, hey, great casting, you know, great idea for a movie. We all love Nelson Mandela. We would love a good biopic of him, but this is an unfocused amateurish attempt but because Clint Eastwood is behind it I mean I'm even inclined to cut him that slack and I'm not a huge fan of Clint Eastwood as a director but I do usually find something in his movies that that I want to salvage like in his last movie Gran Torino I was not at all a fan of that movie but I loved his performance in it I really like when he directs himself and I think he has a really funny and witty sense of his own persona as he ages but this was nowhere in this movie there, there really wasn't any wit or humor to be found right all right. Oh, poor Clint. All right. I hope he doesn't listen to our to our spoiler because I, I feel wish like him he well. can go cry on a pile of money. <laughs> <laughs> he can That's wipe his tears Ray away Romano with a Krugerrand. Right. All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining me for this Slate spoiler special. Thanks, Dana. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.